WBUR Podcasts, Boston. Welcome to Last Scene from WBUR, Boston's NPR station. I'm Nora Sachs, your host, or maybe curator, because this time we've got 10 new mysteries from 10 different contributors about unexpected people, places, and things that have gone missing, and whether or not they can or even should be found. Today on the show, Ben Brock Johnson takes us to a place where things are so well hidden from our sight, we don't even know we miss them. I want to take you back to the ancient times of 2016 and something that was a huge deal, and yet most of us have have kind of forgotten about it. I'm talking about the Panama Papers. The so-called Panama Papers, believed to be the biggest data leak in history, are exposing how some of the world's wealthiest and most powerful people, including leaders like Vladimir Putin, may be hiding So the leak is so big, it's 11 million documents, attorney-client documents, financial documents, information about over 200,000 offshore entities that it requires hundreds of journalists to get together and cull through the documents just to figure out what's in them. What's in them? They figure out that this leak is really fundamentally about wealth and where it is stored. One of the things that the Panama Papers exposes is this kind of crucial update in a long-running story about a dispute between two families over a single painting by this artist, Amadeo Medigliani. He's a Jewish-Italian artist who lived around the turn of the 19th and 20th centuries. He was famous for these beautiful nudes and portraits, but also for, like, extending necks and faces in this surrealist way. And like a lot of famous artists, he lived and died poor, Uh, only to have his sculpture and paintings become worth hundreds of millions of dollars. Highly sought after. The art world freaks out about this stuff, really salivates over it. Here we have a woman behind us, totally naked, voluptuous, dignified, beautiful. And the specific piece of artwork that we learn about in the Panama Papers is called Seated Man with a Cane. So, Nora, this painting is actually part of a bitter, long-running dispute between two families. The dispute is about the rightful owner of this particular Medigliani painting. And what we learn from the Panama Papers is that one of the families involved appears to be lying about who actually owns this painting, Seated Man with a Cane. Uh, What happens when this revelation comes to light? The Swiss government seizes the painting. So the painting is in Switzerland? Sort of. Sort of? So this Medigliani painting is in something called a Freeport, which it turns out is this kind of extra legal entity, something like a foreign trade zone, but not quite. And the story of this particular painting connects to this trend. The trend is that more and more rich people are hiding all kinds of stuff in Freeports. The Medigliani painting, Seated Man with a Cane, is a good example of how free ports are disappearing a bunch of wealth from the world economy in these kind of secret storage areas all over the globe. Well, are you going to let us look inside the secret storage? I'm going to try. 
This is episode two, Out of Time. All right, Ben, take it away. My look into Freeports started with calling a woman in her apartment. Shocker. Her name is Atusa. Atusa has been, like many of us in the pandemic, thinking too much about the famous action movie director Christopher Nolan. I'm just really interested if this is in fact how his mind worked or, or if I'm just reading way too much into it, which is extremely possible. I've been locked up for like a year and a half here. My name is Atusa Raxia Abrahamian. I live in Brooklyn, New York, and I am a journalist working on my second book. What's your second book about? Uh, my second book is uh, tentatively titled The Hidden Globe, and it's about places in the world where the rules don't apply. That seems relevant. In 2017, Atusa went looking for a place where the rules don't apply, a high-security facility in Harlem. Later, something like it would be featured in a movie by Christopher Nolan. But for now, it was just an announcement she found interesting. I saw an article that was um, advertising the opening of a tax-free storage facility in Harlem. And I thought that was kind of weird because Harlem is not the most obvious place for a tax-free storage facility. The next and last stop is 145th Street. It's off the 145th Street subway stop in this really residential neighborhood. Lots of brick apartment buildings. The storage facility sticks out. It's a big, shining, steel and white block with a big purple circle on it. It looks like one of those city storage facilities, but less friendly. It was like a fortress. And that's actually fitting because they named it Arcus, which means fortress in Latin. Also has some sort of feudal connotations, which I'm not sure are super savory, especially for something in a pretty poor neighborhood. To enter this Harlem storage fortress, Atusa had to use biometrics. Can you describe the vascular scan? I, th- I think I recall just putting my arm out, like my forearm, you know, the same way if you're getting your blood drawn, kind of like that. Your veins have a, a special pattern. Um, every, every forearm is its own work of art. Atusa was there to meet two men, Kevin Lay and Tom Sapienza. They co-founded the Tax-Free Storage Service. Their target customer base? Rich art collectors with too much expensive stuff. Stuff they maybe need to store super securely and super safely and super not pay taxes on this stuffy. You had to go through a bunch of doors and past gates to get in. And once you did, there were these huge viewing rooms and large storage lockers. It had a slick and luxury atmosphere inside, too. Except... And it just smelled exactly like an Ikea. It was uncanny. Wow. I guess maybe that's what wood smells like. So, like, not, not Swedish meatballs, but something else. I would be really disturbed if the place where I was going to store my Picasso smelled like meatballs. <laughs> Arcus was supposed to tap into New York City's very developed art scene. It had a place to back up your truck. The intrigue was more in the details. Um, the guys who were who were running it were telling me that there were generators, and then the generators had backup generators, and the backup generators had backup generators. This place feels like it's out of the future. But in truth, it was designed as the latest example of an idea that is hundreds of years old. 
One of the oldest free ports is in Geneva, Switzerland, where Atusa was born. If you visit Geneva, it seems like an old city, very sort of grounded um, in its history. Lots of cobblestones, um, lots of old stuff. It's a, it's a very strange place to grow up, and uh, I think about it all the time. The Geneva Freeport has been around since 1888. Here's a French documentary translated on a YouTube channel called Best Documentary, where a general manager in a massive storage and packing area in the well-lit facility is showing off a painting that is about to travel out of the Freeport to a museum for limited exhibition. Here, look here. It has special antacid paper. What's that just behind? A painting by Modigliani. I shouldn't be telling you that. You can't really see the painting, just the structure of the frame, which is set in this large, industrial, well-padded box, a plasticky substance stretched perfectly taut over it. It looks like the shiny ghost of a painting, cut off from air in what the translator interprets as an isothermal crate. Here, the watchword is secrecy. The clip in the video footage didn't seem all that notable when I first saw it. The guy doing the Vanna White on the thing looks pretty bored and not super interested in being in a four-minute clip on YouTube from the Best Documentary channel. But the artist mentioned, Jewish-Italian painter and sculptor Amadeo Medigliani, is notable because one of his most famous paintings, Seated Man with a Cane, disappeared for a long time. And this painting actually has a, a really sad uh, history. It's called Seated Man with a Cane, and it actually belonged to a Jewish art dealer in Paris named Oscar Stettner. Images of Seated Man with a Cane that you can find online show an oil-on-canvas, full-body portrait that is interesting in its contradictions. A dark-suited, Charlie Chaplin-looking fellow in a hat sits straddling a skinny cane, holding a pipe and both hands atop the cane's hook. But the face of this man is compelling, a slight pucker-mouth smile under melancholy eyes. Medigliani died poor at 35, an alcoholic and drug addict with tuberculosis and a reputation as a vagabond. But his paintings quickly became highly sought after and valuable. A Jewish art collector named Oscar Stettner bought Seated Man with a Cane in Paris, where Medigliani had lived at the end of his life. But then, in 1939, Stettner fled from the eminent Nazi occupation. The Nazis seized the painting, they sold it at an auction to another dealer, and then the painting disappeared. Almost six decades later, the painting reappeared at an auction, and the grandson of Oscar Stettner would try to get it back. But then the painting disappeared again. Then again, eventually someone discovered it at the Geneva Freeport. This was a big deal, a classic work of a famous artist which had been hidden from public view for the vast majority of its hundred-year existence. The story of that century of existence is itself disputed, but the painting's convoluted journey may have involved more than one free port. Atusa says this story about a piece of culture we only catch glimpses of when it's not hidden away in a free port is not unique. There was one um, in the 1990s when an Italian art dealer was found to have been storing looted Roman artifacts at the Freeport. Uh, that was a big scandal. Less than five years later, they found some Egyptian antiques 
um, that turned up there by way of Qatar, the country. And there were mummies in there, apparently. I didn't see them with my own eyes, but I, I heard there were mummies. Okay, I admit, I heard there were mummies sounds far-fetched, but free ports, it turns out, are all over the place. This network of facilities in unclear number with a really unclear picture of what is inside. And the total value of what is inside? Also pretty fuzzy. Uh, Some people estimate that tens of billions, even hundreds of billions worth of art are stored in in art-free ports. While we may not know what's inside Freeports, we know where Freeports are. It's like a treasure map where you know where the X is, but you'll never make it there. Yeah, that's the whole point, I think. The stuff inside Freeports is supposedly in super high-tech storage, but it gets lost so completely, it's almost removed from time, past an event horizon. I'm fascinated by Freeports because of their history and because they're becoming this network of portals across the world where art gets yanked out of our view, even pulled out of time. Apparently, the director, Christopher Nolan, is also into Freeports. They play a key role in his 2020 movie, Tenet. As I understand it, we're trying to prevent World War III. Nuclear holocaust? No. Something worse. Okay, so I can't really follow the plot either, but what's important here is that there is a time-traveling, nuclear-code-having Russian villain played by Kenneth Branagh who stores his super-valuable art in a freeport. Our logistics department ships to and from any other freeport in the world without customs inspection. Spies played by Robert Pattinson and John David Washington have to break in and steal the art to prove they're legit, time travel honestly i'm not sure and i liked the movie a lot but the 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 fact that nolan is playing with this idea that there are objects that can defy time and space is actually really clever because that's what free ports do outside of national space for customs purposes also sort of outside of national time as if you know in amber just for for 24 hours on its way somewhere else Like Atusa, I'm a little obsessed with this idea that there are these black sites all over the world filled with treasure. But Freeports didn't start as super high-tech art storage loved by fictional supervillains. And to really understand what they do today, you have to go back to how they got started, which we will in a minute. The world's clean energy future relies on ancient elements still in the ground. Without mining, there will not be a clean energy transition. But pulling them out of the ground comes at an environmental and human cost. Mining is intrusive, but the results are the building blocks for products that we use every single day. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. Join me on point for Elements of Energy, Mining for a Green Future, five special episodes. Listen and follow On Point wherever you get your podcasts.
Did you kill Marlene Johnson? I think you're one of the first people to have actually asked. From WBUR and ZSP Media, this is Beyond All Repair, a new podcast about an unsolved murder that will leave you questioning everything. Somebody should be in jail for murdering my sister. A woman who's never been believed. As long as they think I have done this, then they're not looking for who actually did this. And that's what makes it a cold case. No, it's a botched case. And a search for the truth, once and for all. Wow, it just gets more interesting. Beyond All Repair. Listen and follow wherever you get your podcasts. Be careful. You're digging in a place that's been very peaceful for a while. Do it anyway. Dig. The writer I am learning from, Atusa Roxia Abrahamian, says the whole notion of free ports started way back in the early modern period, 14 to 1600, also known as in the pirate times. <laughs> in pirate times. Back then, free ports existed where it sounds like free ports would exist. Given that world trade mostly happened by ships back in the day, uh, free ports did tend to be near where the ships came in. What were those ships coming in with? Pretty basic goods. Typically, a free port would be used to store grain um, from where the traders were bringing grain from one place, pausing to, you know, get more food and water at a port, hmm. leaving the grain there, and then moving on elsewhere. And since the goods were not at their final destination... The maritime pit stop paperwork in this burgeoning global trade era was getting annoying. Free ports were a solution. I think it saved people time and money, right? If you, you're bringing bananas from one place to the next and you got to stop somewhere, instead of, you know, offloading the bananas and checking with, with customs and, you know, paying the tax and then the next day taking the bananas out of the facility putting back on the ship. It's just, it's a lot of admin crap yeah. that no one really wants to deal with. Efforts to skip annoying paperwork might even be older than pirate times. Some point to a duty-free hub on the Greek island Delos, established by the Romans in the year 166 BCE. The key thing here is, in the beginning, it's all perishable stuff. It's very temporary storage. And this has a positive impact on the industry around ports like this. Merchants get where they're going faster. The goods can come off the ship and be in safe storage for a bit. It's cheaper. And then some clever accountants and capitalists seized on it and made it work for them. And the world is full of these little provisions. Free ports are definitely one of them. Over the decades and centuries, as our globally connected world evolves and our accounting practices develop, so do freeports. Eventually, you can store all kinds of things in freeports. And depending on the country you're in, you can call all kinds of facilities freeports. You end up putting a wine cave in Luxembourg in the same category as like a sweatshop in Vietnam. And then, right around the time the Nazis are starting to take over the world and stealing or destroying vast amounts of artwork in the process, around the time Oscar Stettner was fleeing Paris and leaving Seated Man with a Cane behind, Freeports start to enter their final form. 
as not just a way station, but a tax haven, which takes hold in the second half of the 20th century. You know, this was a period when when world trade, it's not that there wasn't globalization before, um, but world trade and financialization was really picking up. And so this idea that you can kind of pick and choose a jurisdiction and do a kind of arbitrage between places, um, that became a popular way of doing business. Anyone even vaguely following the money has probably heard of offshoring putting funds in the Cayman Islands, basically storing money in places where taxes can't get at it. And like these other loopholes exploited by the super-rich, free ports have become really useful as places to store wealth. But not ones and zeros, like actual physical treasure. Treasure gets its value by being scarce, right? Or seeming scarce, according to the people who are keeping tabs on treasure. The art market is a relatively opaque uh, structure, right? Yeah, and, why is it so mysterious? Well, because privacy is of incredible value, right? Why? Uh, but why? I don't. I, this is a. This is just a dumb idiot question. But I feel like why? Like why? Why? Well, it's kind of like you keep your treasure in the dungeon, right? You don't. Uh, you don't put it in the front yard. <laughs> <laughs> My name is John Zarabel. I am a former museum curator and university professor. Now I teach uh, international studies. My research has primarily been on the art market over the last 10 years. John read an article in the New York Times about Freeports back in 2012. And ever since, he's been obsessed with Freeports, the people who use them and the people who run them. The real challenge is that they're very good at, at keeping secrets and you can only get certain kinds of information. Over the last century, one specific type of treasure being stored in high-tech dungeons has become more popular. Art. That's because most other ways of storing value, cash, bank accounts, land, stocks, have become more regulated. And when it comes to international finance, John says the regulations have ramped up even more in the last couple of decades. Why? Basically, 9-11, I think, really changed the, the dynamic. Um, and it started to become clear that in order to stop terrorism, they had to stop financing. And in order to stop financing, then they had to look a lot more carefully at how money was being transferred across international borders. And so the anti-money laundering directives um, really got going after um, 2001. As countries around the world have slowly made traditional money laundering slightly harder, John says art has remained slower to be regulated. In fact, John has called art the most unregulated industry on the planet, which makes it a pretty good area to play in if you're rich. As an investment, fine art has been quietly outperforming the S&P 500 since the mid-90s. Real wages for working people haven't gone up for 30 years, but the really wealthy people are being able to secret or amass greater and greater wealth that needs to find outlets, right? They want to invest that money. They don't want to just stash it in a mattress. They want to invest that money in something. And part of that investment is going to be in um, art and collectibles, which are, of course, hard assets. And those places need some place to live. Freeports end up becoming the kind of perfect structure, right? I mean, they existed since the 19th century. Even the 18th century, there were previous previous structures like Freeports, right? But, but only in the 21st century do they start to make this kind of sense. Stashing hard assets from the art trade in high-tech dungeons 
is getting more difficult in some places. Three boards provide an ex- excellent example of how you can circumvent that, right? By shipping a work of art to a place that's not actually in any country. People who hoard this stuff can play more complicated shell games, too. Say you have a piece of artwork, and you decide to put it in the Geneva Freeport. And when it goes in, you are the owner. But inside the Freeport, you actually sell it to another collector who happens to have work in that same Freeport. That transaction avoids all kinds of paperwork and, of course, taxes. And then maybe the new owner decides to send the artwork to a different Freeport in Luxembourg or the one in Beijing or Singapore. Again, avoiding the scrutiny of prying regulatory eyes. Now, it's not just the owner of the artwork that's been lost to public view. It is also the physical location of it. Seated Man with a Cane is at the center of a similar kind of shell game. The family of its original owner, the Jewish art dealer Oskar Stettner, has been trying to track it down ever since the Nazis reportedly took it in World War II. Stettner himself had tried to get the piece back after the war ended. But in the ensuing chaos of a global conflict, the painting had disappeared from Paris, supposedly sold to an American. It wouldn't reappear until 1996 at a Christie's auction in London, where it fetched a several million dollar bid. Soon, it was on display in London and New York in galleries owned by a powerful family of international art dealers, the Namads. And a new family became connected to Seated Man with a Cane, the Namad family, another Jewish art dealing family that is considered by some to be the single biggest buying force in fine art. The grandson of Stettner quickly filed a claim against the Namads, but the Namad family said, no, no, we don't own the painting. We just represent the company that owns it, called IAC, International Art Center. It wasn't until 20 years later that the Panama Papers would reveal that this company, the International Art Center, was a shell corporation, owned solely by the Namad family. So the Namads did own the painting after all, whether or not they had the right to own it. And a combination of shell corporations and free ports and a dispute over ownership had disappeared this work of art from public view for decades. They have impeccable reputations, and they also have impeccable reputations in their business dealings with other people in the art world. The Canadian Broadcast Corporation interviewed the Namad family's lawyer back in 2016. It was a contentious conversation. The interviews, there's nothing else to say. I'm not going to, I told you before, there's nothing else I'm going to say because who owns IAC is, is about as relevant to this as, you know, who's living on Pluto. John recently went to an art crime convention. It was held in the UK, virtually, and there was a panel featuring people from the FBI and Scotland Yard. And I asked them about Freeports, and, and the fellow from the FBI basically said straight out, they're, they're opaque, right? Um, we just don't know what's going on there. And if we want to get inside, if we have a good lead, we have to work with the you know, regulatory authorities in our you know, partner countries, right? So they have to use Europol or Interpol in order to make these kinds of requests through a Swiss government. Having a fresh lead on something can be hard enough. 
connecting to Interpol, who then has to reach out to the Swiss government because you think something might be in a free port, it's a rigmarole. John says law enforcement frantically chases this stuff. People illegally digging up artifacts in Mexico or Nigeria, selling it on Facebook Marketplace to other people who immediately squirrel it away. Once they go into the Freeport, they, they will never find anything else out about it. So you need to find some evidence that something was, you know, looted, stolen, dug up and sent to that Freeport, right? Wow. Um, it's like, it's almost like a layer of capital that exists in the world that we can't see. Yep. Does that make any sense? No, absolutely. A lot of recent research, including John's, looks at the impact of a global network of mysterious facilities where the super wealthy can store, buy, and sell artwork. Do we have any sense of the amount of art? So this is something that I've tried to get at, um, and it's hard to discern. But um, according to um, various reports, uh, there's around a million works stored in the Geneva Freeport alone, right? And that is one of a series of Freeports around the world. So, you know, we know that there's a, if there's a million works in this place, um, we know that there's probably got to be two million works worldwide. We don't know how many of those works are super valuable. But Seated Man with a Cane, for instance, has alone been valued at $35 million. That is one piece of art that has gone missing in a Freeport. The information John says we do have, mostly from surveys done at the highest levels of the art world, suggests the art trade is a $70 billion annual industry. There's still a lot we don't know about Freeports, how they're used, and what's in them. Often, all we have to go on is the statements of the people who own and run them people who can do their own marketing. John traded emails with the owner of the Geneva Freeport a while back. He said, you know, we have more Picassos in the Geneva Freeport than any other place on earth, right? We have the biggest collection of Picassos here. Um, and, and, and that's a provocative statement and, and there's no way of verifying it, of course, but it, but it makes, it sends the signal that, you know, if you're someone who's got some Picassos you don't want other people to know about and you can't fit them on your walls, this would be a good place for them because there's a lot of other people who've done that too. If Freeports now exist to facilitate secrecy and privacy for people trying to store their valuables and those valuables are art, the result is a lot of artwork never being seen by humanity. Picassos, Medigliani's Seated Man with a Cane, any self-respecting art lover would say this work should be in public view. This is implicit in the cliché that something belongs in a museum. But instead, this art is apparently hanging in the utilitarian transactional viewing rooms of Freeports. And there's the antiquities piece of this too. The mummies that Atusa referred to, and other artifacts that are part of our collective understanding of history. John says, in a way, Freeports can represent almost a growing cultural amnesia. A great example of that is when the Benin Bronzes came to light, um, it became clear that the sub-Saharan Africans, you know, the, the Nigerians, before the Renaissance, really, um, created a, a means of, of generating lifelike images that was far superior to anything that Europe had at the time. And that, of course, is going to disarm any ideas of African art being primitive. It's hard to know how much we don't know. But John says, without a doubt, 
In the beginning of this century, freeports are continuing to disappear a lot of stuff from our collective view. And we can only really guess at this stuff by guessing about the money. There's an organization called Global Financial Integrity that really looks at the money that disappears from the global south, basically, what we consider to be the global south widely understood. And, you know, money that just disappears from what we would consider to be the poorest countries in the world um, going into tax havens and just disappearing, right? And and their numbers are, are pretty shattering. I mean, they're talking about, you know, numbers that are close to a trillion dollars a year. A few years after the Panama Papers were released, Atusa says something started to happen to these places where the rules don't apply. So freeports have gotten a bit of a, have hit a rough patch recently, in part because of all of the the scandals of looted mummies and and whatnot, and also because some of the major figures um, in the freeport world have had some lawsuit problems. Also problems with authorities. In 2016, just days after the release of the Panama Papers, Swiss authorities used a local law that was barely a year old to march into the Geneva Freeport and seize seated man with a cane. It was a rare case, a moment where the government stepped in and applied the rules to a place where the rules don't normally apply. In 2017, Stettner's case disputing the ownership of the painting was upheld. And in 2020, A new document surfaced, supporting the claim. A photograph from 1950 showing the Medigliani painting with a note from a French government official describing it as stolen. The Namab family and their lawyers still dispute this claim. And so the painting, in a way, remains lost, at least for the Stettner family, to long legal battles. Atusa told me that Arcus, the fortress-like, super-secure freeport facility in Harlem, seems to have folded. Arcus has been closed since Halloween um, of 2020 under somewhat mysterious circumstances. The building is still there, but the business inside it may have overstated its ability to circumvent New York state tax law. Arcus was not able to really make a big case for the tax advantages because there just weren't very many advantages to be had in New York. But the website for Arcus is still up. So I called the main number one morning to get answers. A man picked up the phone with an unofficial hello. I asked if this was Arcus, and he excitedly said, yes. But when I told him where I was from and why I was calling, the conversation immediately took a hard turn. This entire conversation is off the record, he said. And he told me to send him an email with my questions. He wouldn't say anything else, not even whether the facility was still open. I'm still waiting for him to respond to my emailed questions. In the end, Atusa thinks Arcus was a marketing ploy for some very expensive New York City storage space. The pandemic hit the art trade just like other parts of the global economy. And there are new laws and financial regulations around the world being written, too, in the long, slow fallout of the Panama Papers. But that fallout is slow, and free ports are still in use. Atusa says that one of the possible futures is that free ports become less culturally loaded and more value-loaded, housing diamonds instead of artworks. John thinks that if the way wealth disparity is going continues, Leaks like the Panama Papers might turn into something more revolutionary. 
A dragon can store its treasure in a dungeon, but eventually, dragon slayers show up. The analogy that I would like to make is that, um, you know, in the next revolution, we may see the people storming the Freeport as opposed to storming the Bastille. Whether or not Freeports get stormed in some future wealth war, both John and Natusa see Freeports as continuing their centuries-long existence. After all, Freeports, accountants, and the super-wealthy, they've all proven their ability to adapt. We'll see more of them pop up in maybe se- what, what these people might call second-tier jurisdictions, so not a Dubai or a Singapore, but maybe a, a Vladivostok or a Malta or something like that. But, you know, they've endured Freeports in various shapes and sizes and functions have been a part of the world economy for some time, and I don't expect that to stop because I think they're very useful to capitalists and capital finds a way. Coming up next week, a story about two astronomers who spend their whole lives searching for something that may not even exist, the largest hidden object in the solar system. It's literally one of the largest unsolved mysteries in human history. And Mike still believes he's going to find it. He's obsessed. I think it's a little uh, Ahab-like. I am going to go find this thing, and it it may kill me. (laughs) This episode of Last Seen was reported and written by Ben Brock Johnson. Special thanks to journalist Atusa Araxia Abrahamian. You can find more of her work at terranulius.substack.com. And big thanks to Professor John Zarabell at the University of San Francisco. His website is johnzarabell.com. Also thanks to Professor Dara Orenstein for sharing her research with us. Our episode was produced by Ben and myself, Nora Sachs, your host and curator of Last Seen Season 2. Nick White is our story editor for this series. Mix, sound design, and original music by Paul Vikas. Production help from my WBUR podcast teammates, Amory Sievertson, Dean Russell, Matt Reed, Quincy Walters, and Kristen Torres. Fact-checking by Mira Rahman. Ben Brock Johnson is our executive producer. Find all of our stories and show notes at WBUR.org slash Last Scene, and follow us on Twitter at Last Scene Podcast. And remember, you can always pitch us your story ideas about people, places, and things that have gone missing. Drop us a line at lastseenwbur at gmail.com. Thanks so much for listening. We'll be back next week.